Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, October 23rd, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. On Monday night, the Academy hosted British biologist and author Richard Dawkins. Yes, the Richard Dawkins, the evolution evangelist. Dawkins has a new book out called The Greatest Show on Earth. In it, he argues that evolution is an indisputable fact, despite more than 40% of Americans believing the opposite. He launched his brand new book in front of a sold-out crowd of more than 300 people, and today, we'll play you his lecture in full. We have a war on our hands. You've just heard that more than 40% of the US population, according to Gallup, believes that the world came into existence less than 10,000 years ago. That is a quite astonishing disconnect from reality. The the reality is that the world is 4.6 billion years old. And I've mentioned this calculation many times before. The equivalent of believing that the world is only Uh, 6,000 years old, which is the official biblical figure, is to believe that the distance from New York to San Francisco is less than 80 yards. That's the scale of the error that we are talking about, and it's an error that, if Gallup is to be believed, is in the minds of 44% of the American population. At the beginning of this book, I have likened the predicament of a science teacher today to a Latin teacher, or teacher of Latin and Roman history, having to contend with a sort of rearguard defense, having to put out a rearguard defense of the proposition that the Romans existed at all, and that the Latin language was ever spoken, rather than being an invention to keep Victorian schoolmasters in in employment. (laughs) I've also likened the history denial shown by these uh, young earth creationists to Holocaust deniers in the sense that the evidence for evolution is as strong as the evidence for the Holocaust. I hasten to say I'm not suggesting that evolution deniers are motivated by the same sinister political agenda as Holocaust deniers are. They're motivated by a different sinister political agenda. But I don't want to make this book seem like a a negative, debunking kind of book. It isn't mainly that. The evidence for evolution is above all positive. It's enthralling. It's exciting. It is the greatest show on Earth. Life on this planet is the greatest show on Earth. And life on this planet may well be the greatest show in the universe, because we have no evidence that anything like the quite astounding phenomena of life are to be found anywhere else in the universe. Maybe they are, uh, in which case life is the greatest show in the universe, still. The first chapter also considers the definition of the word theory, which, as you know, is much misunderstood. And I quote two definitions from the Oxford Dictionary, one of which is the tentative, only a theory, only a hypothesis that needs falsifying or verifying, and the other being the sort of meaning that a scientist uses when when talking about, say, the heliocentric theory of the solar system or the theory of gravitation or the atomic theory of matter. And it's, of course, in that sense that evolution is a a theory. But in ordinary colloquial language, evolution is a fact. Chapter 2, Dogs, Cows, and Cabbages, follows Darwin in making use of domestication, the astonishing power of selective breeding to produce from a wolf dog, or from the wild cabbage, Brassica oleracea, uh, all the different varieties of cabbage-like plants that we eat, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, and various sorts of cabbage, and so on. If you wanted to do an experiment to test the theory of natural selection, what would you do? Well, experiment implies human intervention. What you would do would be to administer the selective force yourself as an experimenter. In other words, you would do artificial selection, which is what humans have done inadvertently at first in breeding 
dogs and cabbages and pigeons and so on. And also experimentally, there are now numerous experiments where people have administered a selective pressure on populations of animals and plants and produced dramatic results, dramatic evolutionary change in a very short time, within one human lifetime. A nice example is the work of Belayev, a Russian geneticist who studied silver foxes and bred them artificially for tameness. And he succeeded in breeding super tame foxes, which behaved like dogs, licked your face, wagged their tail, behaved just like dogs. What's more interesting is that after only about 30 years, he's, he has these foxes that look like dogs. They, they look like collie dogs, no longer look like foxes. They've got black and white patches on their coats. They've got floppy ears. Uh, they bark like dogs. That is a curious phenomenon of traits being dragged along in the wake of other ones. He selected only for tameness, but what he got was dog-like characteristics in all sorts of other respects. That's an interesting um, side glance. The important point is that he produced dramatic evolutionary change in a mere 30 years. And if you can do that in 30 years, just think what could be achieved in 100 million years. It would not be artificial selection, of course. It would be natural selection. Coming on to that. Chapter 3, The Primrose Path to Macroevolution. This chapter is an exercise in seduction. Starting with artificial selection, which we've just been talking about, showing the power of artificial selection, I'm trying gradually to wean the reader on to natural selection by going through a number of intermediate stages. The pea hen selects the peacock in something like the same way as human breeders select Frisian cattle or uh, white Leghorn hens. Peahens, of course, don't consciously choose peacocks. They do choose peacocks on the basis of that which appeals to them aesthetically. You can use the word aesthetically. And the result is the astonishing, flamboyant splendor of the peacock. And the same thing happens with birds of paradise, numerous other birds, insects, fish, amphibians, mammals, and so on. Flowers, the brightness of flowers, the bright colors of flowers, the, the, the exotic, the seductive perfumes of flowers, these were, first of all, chosen by insects, choosing the flowers that they would visit to, and, and from the flower's point of view, pollinate. That's what the flower gets out of it. The insect gets nectar, of course, usually. What the insects started, human horticulturalists carried on with. So something like a wild rose, a pretty little flower, but nothing to compare with the beautiful roses that human gardeners have produced by artificial selection, the beautiful perfumes. What I'm saying, what I'm, the, po the point I'm making, is that what human selectors have done is simply to carry on where the insect selectors left off. So we can regard insects as doing the same kind of job as human artificial selectors. Anglerfish have a fishing rod sticking out of the top of their head uh, with a bait on the end, and they play their prey, small prey, down into the vicinity, cast the, the, the rod down into the vicinity of the mouth. Small fish are attracted to the bait. When they get sufficiently close to the mouth, the anglerfish opens up its great maw, and the, the inrush of water sucks in the prey. Obviously, a very sensible way to get prey. From the point of view of the victim, the prey fish, you could say that the prey fish are acting as selective breeders, selecting anglerfish for more effective bait. Now, obviously, it's not to the advantage of the prey to do that. Nevertheless, that is what they're doing. So you see how the, the primrose path to, to macroevolution, the seductive path, is working. I'm gradually moving towards natural selection. In natural selection, we've already got to natural selection, of course, but in, in ordinary natural selection, we generalize it and say that any, any variation, any genetic variation whatsoever, whether it's visible on the outside, as all the examples I've talked about so far have been, or a purely internal change, genetic change, some subtle detail of biochemistry, something that you'd never notice on the outside at all, if it contributes in any way to the survival 
or reproduction and or reproduction of the animal, that will be positively uh, or negatively selected. We've moved now up the primrose path of seduction from artificial selection, which anybody can understand, and which was understood, of course, long before Darwin, to natural selection, which only Darwin and Wallace, it could, it could be argued anyway, really grasped. It was Darwin and Wallace who saw that the principle of artificial selection that everybody understood could be generalized to nature. Nature just means that some animals survive and some animals don't survive, for whatever reason. And that has exactly the same effect as if there was a human breeder choosing which puppies to save and which puppies to kill, which puppies to breed from, which puppies not to breed from. In order to get major macroevolutionary change, such as changing fish into mammals, you need time. Artificial selection, we've seen that in human terms. In a few centuries, we've seen what can be done. But in natural selection, evolution, we've got hundreds of millions of years. We need to know how, we need to set out the evidence, that we do have hundreds of millions of years. In Darwin's time, this was doubted. In Darwin's time, the senior British physicist of the day, Lord Kelvin, demonstrated to the satisfaction of himself and other physicists that the sun and the earth were only a, a few million years old, not long enough for evolutionary change. This worried Darwin because he was a humble man and he recognized, as many of us do, that physics is kind of the senior science. And so he kind of, he never actually caved in, but it did worry him. Um, it, the, the basis for Kelvin's miscalculation was that he, being a Victorian scientist, thought that the sun was, was doing combustion, was burning something. He didn't really think it was coal, but something like um, burning coal, in which case his calculation would have been correct. It's a nice quirk of history that it fell to Charles Darwin's son, Sir George Darwin. Da Charles himself was never knighted. His son, Sir George Darwin, um, to demonstrate to the British Association in the early uh, 20th century that um, uh, the sun, because it was a nuclear reactor, had plenty of time to have given all the time we need for evolution. What Darwin should have said to Lord Kelvin is, well, if your physics tells you that the Earth is not old enough for evolution to have taken place, then I'm sorry your physics is wrong, because the evidence from biology is overwhelming. Uh, that would have been the correct response, as it turned out it the refutation came finally from, from physics. My chapter mostly goes into the details of how we know how old the Earth is, how we know how old uh, fossils are, uh, mostly using uh, radioactive dating. Physicists will tell us the half-life of isotopes. And um, these isotopes, um, uh, gives, for example, uh, potassium-40 decays to argon-40 with a half-life of 1.26 billion years. At the moment when molten lava solidifies, crystals are formed. And at that moment, you could say that the clock is zeroed. The clock, the potassium clock is, is zeroed. The argon-40 content is zero. And at any later time, if you measure the argon-40 con argon content and the potassium-40 content and compare the two, knowing the half-life of this particular decay, you can calculate the exact moment within ordinary limits of error, the exact moment when that crystal was formed, when that lava solidified. Fossils don't appear in, don't occur in igneous rock. So you have to um, look for igneous rock that is to be found in the vicinity of a fossil in sedimentary rock. And that's not too difficult to do. And the science of dating is now well developed. And it's how we know how old fossils are and how we know how old the Earth is, 4.6 billion years. There are other ways in which we know that as well. The next chapter, before our very eyes, I've said that uh, mostly evolution takes a very, very long time, and uh, there are exceptions to that. There are some cases where we see natural evolution taking place sufficiently fast that an individual scientist can study it within one scientific lifetime, a matter of, a matter of decades. And I discuss a number of examples of this. But there are fairly few, these examples, compared with the evidence that we have from 
the massive amount of time that's been available for long-term macroevolution. And for that, I use the analogy, it's a recurrent analogy throughout the book, of a detective coming on the scene of a crime too late to be an eyewitness. And this would be the normal situation for a detective. It's not granted to many detectives to actually be eyewitnesses to a murder. They come upon the murder afterwards, and they then look at clues which remain. Fingerprints, footprints, bloodstains, all sorts of other things that are left lying around. And from this, the detective infers what must have happened. The equivalent for evolution is clues that remain, which hugely outnumber in, in number and strength the clues that are available to any detective in any ordinary murder mystery. So beyond reasonable doubt, which is the criterion that juries are supposed to, to work to, um, the evidence for evolution is far beyond reasonable doubt. It's just beyond all possible, conceivable, sane, sensible doubt. Chapter six, missing link. What do you mean, missing? Creationists love the fossil record because they think it's an embarrassment to evolutionists because they point out that there are gaps in the fossil record. Well, of course there are gaps in the fossil record. What do you expect? Would you expect every single species that's ever lived to fossilize? We're lucky to have fossils at all. If we didn't have a single fossil, if not a single corpse had ever fossilized, the evidence for evolution would be utterly secure. We don't need fossils to demonstrate evolution. It's nice that we've got them, uh, because they tell us a lot about the history of life, but we don't need them to demonstrate that evolution is a fact. The evidence comes from other sources. The, the biggest gap, and the one that creationists love best of all, is the gap before the Cambrian era, just over half a billion years ago. Uh, before that time, there were rather few fossils, and uh, most of the major animal phyla appear relatively suddenly in the fossil record in the Cambrian. I wrote in an earlier book, I'm going to just read a passage. Yes, in The Blind Watchmaker in 1986, I wrote... The Cambrian shows us a, subst a substantial number of major animal phyla already in an advanced state of evolution the very first time they appear. It is as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. You can see how naive I was uh, in 1986 not to realize how shamelessly that would be quote mind. <laughs> it's as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. Needless to say, this appearance of sudden planting has delighted creationists. I was savvy enough to realize that uh, they would like that. I decided to search the World Wide Web for that sentence. It is as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history to see how many hits I got. And I obtained no fewer than 1,250 hits for that sentence. Well, you need a control if you're a scientist to compare that with, otherwise you don't know what you expect to get, uh, how many hits you'd expect to get for, from a sentence like that. So I looked at the very next sentence from The Blind Watchmaker, which was, evolutionists of all stripes believe, however, that this really does represent a very large gap in the fossil record. The number of hits I obtained for that, as compared to the 1,250 for the first quote, the number of, of hits I obtained for the second quote was 63. The ratio of 1,250 to 63 is 19.8, and I call that ratio the quote mining index. <laughs> the quote mining index is also very high for the famous quote from Darwin, where he talks about the eye and says something like, to suppose that the eye, with all its, and he goes into detailed uh, sentence about all the highly complicated ways in which eyes are adapted and adjusted and do self-focusing and self-stopping down. He says, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by numerous small, in, small incremental changes seems absurd in the highest degree. He, he then, of course, goes on, but that's where the quote stops. <laughs> and, uh, and they miss out um, Darwin's immediately following explanation for how actually, although it seems absurd, it's not absurd. Uh, and once again, we have a very high quote, mining index, the ratio 
I've, I've done it for that too. The ratio of the two, of the number of hits for the two quotes is is also very high. Well, before leaving the Cambrian explosion, I just want to make one more point. There are modern animals, for example, flatworms, the great phylum Platyhelminthes, which includes tapeworms and flukes and free-living turbellaria, which are beautiful animals, delightful animals, often very brightly colored, very ubiquitous, very common, enormously common. More, more, there are more species than there are of mammals, for example. Not a single fossil of a Platyhelminth has ever been found, or authentically found. In other words, we have here a major modern phylum which has no fossil history at all. It is as though it were planted here yesterday. So you see how illogical it is to say that because there are no fossils before a certain point, therefore there were no animals. There are all sorts of reasons why an animal doesn't fossil. It may be too small. It may be that it doesn't have hard skeletal parts. That's the case for the flatworms, for example. I'm going to read another short passage from this chapter. What would be evidence against evolution, and very strong evidence of that, would be the discovery of even a single fossil in the wrong geological stratum. J.B.S. Haldane famously retorted when asked to name an observation that would disprove the theory of evolution, fossil rabbits in the Precambrian. No such rabbits, no authentically anachronistic fossils of any kind have ever been found. All the fossils that we have, and there are very, very many indeed, occur without a single authenticated exception in the right temporal sequence. Yes, there are gaps where there are no fossils at all, and that's only to be expected. But not a single solitary fossil has ever been found before it could have evolved. That's a very telling fact, and there's no reason why we should expect it on the creationist theory. A good theory, a scientific theory, is one that is vulnerable to disproof, yet is not disproved. Evolution could so easily be disproved if just a single fossil turned up in the wrong date order. Evolution has passed this test with flying colors. Skeptics of evolution who wish to prove their case should be diligently scrabbling around in the rocks, desperately trying to find anachronistic fossils. Maybe they'll find one. Want a bet? The next chapter carries on the theme of fossils into human fossils. It's called Missing Persons, Missing No Longer. And I'm going to read just a little bit about the uh, type specimen of Australopithecus africanus, which is the so-called Tong child. Australopithecus was the genus that almost certainly preceded our own genus Homo in our evolutionary ancestry. In other words, we're almost certainly descended from members of the genus Australopithecus, although it may not be any one of the species that have so far been named. The first Australopithecine to be discovered and the type specimen of the genus was the so-called Tong child. At the age of three and a half, the Tong child was eaten by an eagle. The evidence is that damage marks to the eye sockets of the fossil are identical to marks made by modern eagles on modern monkeys as they rip out their eyes. Poor little Tong child, shrieking on the wind as you were borne aloft by the aquiline fury. You would have found no comfort in your destined fame two and a half million years on as the type specimen of Australopithecus africanus. Poor Tong mother, weeping in the Pliocene. I want at this point to raise a point of terminology which I think is extremely relevant. The Tong child, I said, was the type specimen of Australopithecus africanus. That means it's the specimen that was first discovered and described and to which people refer when they have a new specimen and they want to know, does it belong to this species or not? So each new fossil or new animal, indeed, that's, that, that's discovered is always given a Linnaean binomial name, a specific name preceded by a generic name, like Homo sapiens, Australopithecus africanus, uh, or whatever it is. When a fossil is actually intermediate between two species or two genera, and on the evolution review, there, there must be such fossils, we are not allowed by our conventions of, of nomenclature to give it an intermediate name. There's no machinery in, in language 
to give a name that is intermediate between, say, Australopithecus afarensis and Homo habilis. Yet, if there must have been a member of the genus Homo that was the immediate child of a member of the genus Australopithecus, but you can immediately see that that's nonsense, because how could a baby be a different genus from its, from its mother? Obviously, in every single case, every baby born is the same species, let alone the same genus, as its mother. If you were to walk backwards down through your ancestral tree, starting with your mother and then your grandmother, great-grandmother, let's just stick to females for convenience, great-great-grandmother and so on, you would go back and back and back and back and back, go back as far as you like, and gradually the animals that you, that you were walking past as you walked past your ancestors would be gradually, ever so slowly, changing into something else. By the time you got back to about six or seven million years ago, you'd be looking at an animal which was the common ancestor between ourselves and chimpanzees. And you could then, if you wish, uh, turn around and start walking forwards along the line leading to chimpanzees. At every single point along that sequence, the animals that you are looking at would belong to the same species as their, their immediate neighbors, which would be their mother and their daughter. They would be more alike than members of species ordinarily are because they would, because they would be mother and daughter. Therefore, they would be more alike. And yet, if you walk back sufficiently far, they would have changed from modern Homo sapiens to a completely different genus. You could go back to a fish using the same technique. And by the time you got to the end of your walk, you would have walked through con a continuously changing set of animals, all the way from human to fish. And then you could walk forwards again from fish to, I don't know what, I mean, a kangaroo or something. In every single case, you would, be, you would be seeing animals that are of the same species as their neighbors in the sequence. And yet the changes are so slow, but yet so persistent, that eventually you get back to a fish. It's not all that surprising, because after all, when a baby turns into an adult, you don't suddenly say, aha, it ceased to be a baby, it's now turned into a child. And then, aha, it's not, it ceased to be a child, it's now become an adult. It happens so gradually, you don't notice the change. It, we are like a flea sitting on the hour hand of a watch. You can't see it, you can't see it moving. It moves so slowly that you, that, that you don't see it. Now, in spite of that, we do force upon every fossil that we find, by convention, the binomial name, either, say, Australopithecus afarensis or Homo habilis. And that's meat and drink to creationists, because whenever a fossil's found, it's either an ape or a human. We don't have a name for an intermediate. We can't call it an intermediate because we don't have the nomenclatural apparatus to do so. And they prey on that convention. And maybe it's time evolutionists started, while never actually abandoning the, the Linnaean binomial convention, nevertheless admit that there may be times when a fossil doesn't deserve to be given a name, simply should be called intermediate between some other recognized fossils. Think about it another way. If every creature that had ever lived fossilized, then naming would, would be impossible. Everything would be intermediate. You'd have to give it a name that reflected the, the shading between species and genera. Richard Dawkins will return in 30 seconds after a quick message from Science in the City. Science in the City needs your help. Yes, yours. We know you like our podcasts, you're listening right now, but did you know that you're actually a big part of these podcasts? The Science and the City program relies 100% on your financial support. You can help us by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences or donating directly to the program online at scienceandthecity.org donate. Sponsorship and underwriting opportunities are also available. The next chapter, I'm just going to read the beginning. That irascible genius, J.B.S. Haldane, who did so much else besides being one of the three leading architects of neo-Darwinism, was once challenged by a lady after a public lecture. It's a word-of-mouth anecdote, and John Maynard Smith is sadly not available to confirm the exact words, but this is approximately how the exchange went. Evolution skeptic. 
Professor Haldane, even given the billions of years that you say were available for evolution, I simply cannot believe it is possible to go from a single cell to a complicated human body, with its trillions of cells organized into bones and muscles and nerves, a heart that pumps without ceasing for decades, miles and miles of blood vessels and kidney tubules, and a brain capable of thinking and talking and feeling. JBS. But, madam, you did it yourself, and it only took you nine months. <laughs> that chapter is about embryology and the important relationship between embryology and evolution. You can't understand evolution fully unless you have some grasp of the embryonic processes that generation after generation start with a single cell and give rise to an adult, which then reproduces, producing a new single cell, and so on. The processes of embryology are extremely complex. They themselves must have evolved. And that, that chapter is aimed at that understanding. The next chapter, The Ark of the Continents, is about the geographical distribution of animals and plant species in the islands and continents of the world, which, coming back to our detective analogy, are exactly what you would expect them to be if they had evolved, and exactly what you would not expect them to be if they had been created, especially if they had been uh, released from Noah's Ark. Uh, I'll read a short paragraph or two from that chapter. It is almost too ridiculous to mention it, but I'm afraid I have to because of the more than 40% of the American population who, as I lamented in chapter one, accept the Bible literally. Think what the geographical distribution of animals should look like if they'd all dispersed from Noah's Ark. Shouldn't there be some sort of law of decreasing species diversity as we move away from an epicenter, perhaps Mount Ararat? I don't need to tell you that is not what we see. Why would all those marsupials, ranging from tiny pouched mice through koalas and bilbies to giant kangaroos and diprotodonts, why would all those marsupials, but no placentals at all, have migrated en masse from Mount Ararat to Australia? <laughs> Which route did they take? And why did not a single member of their straggling caravan pause on the way and settle in <laughs> India, perhaps, or China, or some haven along the Great Silk Road? Why did the entire order Edentata, all 20 species of armadillo, including the extinct giant armadillo, all six species of sloth, including extinct giant sloths, and all four species of anteater, troop off unerringly for South America, <laughs> leaving not a rack behind, leaving no hide nor hair nor armor plate of settlers somewhere along the way? Why did all the penguins undertake the long waddle south <laughs> to the Antarctic, not a single one to the equally hospitable Arctic. Once again, I'm sorry to take a sledgehammer to so small and fragile a nut, <laughs> but I have to do so. I have to do so because more than 40% of the American people believe literally in the story of Noah's Ark. We should be able to ignore them and get on with our science, but we can't afford to because they control school boards. They homeschool their children to deprive them of access to proper science teachers. And they include many members of the United States Congress, some state governors, and even presidential and vice-presidential candidates. They have the money and the power to build institutions, universities, even a museum where children ride life-size mechanical models of dinosaurs with saddles which they're solemnly told coexisted with humans. We can't afford to be snooty in Britain about that. 28% of the British population get their science from the Flintstones as well, believing that humans coexisted with dinosaurs. The next chapter, the tree of cousinship. Here I think we come to perhaps the most powerful evidence of all for evolution looking at the enormous numbers of modern species that there are and comparing them systematically. Darwin was able to do this with anatomy, skeletons, for example. He was able to see that the hand of a man and the wing of a bat are directly homologous. A bat's wing is enormously long, splayed out fingers with webbing stretched between the fingers. A horse's hoof is the same hand where, of the five fingers, 
only the middle one remains, and the horse walks on the middle finger and the middle toe, and the hoof is the, is the nail. And you can see that, you can see it in the fossil record, how the number of fingers di diminished, and there are occasional freak horses uh, which are born with three toes, showing an intermediate uh, stage. But that was the, the limit of what was possible in, in, in Darwin's time. You could compare anatomy and show very, very convincingly that it fell on a family tree. Nowadays, you can do the same thing with molecules, with, with, with genes molecularly analyzed. And the sheer amount of information available is, is multiplied many orders of magnitude. Because the genetic code is universal, all creatures have the same machine code, the same code whereby triplets of DNA are rendered into amino acids. You can directly compare the same gene in one animal with the same gene in another animal. You know it's the same gene. It's got essentially the same sequence with minor differences. There's a letter different here, a letter different there, a letter different there. And the corresponding differences appear in the amino acids and in the protein chain that they produce. But you can say this is the same gene, it's doing the same job, it's got the same sequence with these minor differences. And then you can literally count the number of differences between these genes. It's not a case of saying, oh, this limb looks a bit like that limb. You are literally comparing alternative texts, just like alternative versions of, of the book of Isaiah or something, where you just look at, count the number of differences that there are between chapters, between letters, between sentences, words. And when you do that, for any one gene you like, you find that the differences fall on a beautiful hierarchical tree. What could that be but a family tree? What could that be but a pedigree? Then you do the same thing for another gene, and you find the same tree. And then you do it for another gene, and you find the same tree. Then you do it for a gene which no longer does anything, but you can still sequence it. Nature doesn't read the gene anymore. It's never translated into protein. But molecular geneticists can read it, and they can recognize uh, that it is a defunct version of the same gene. And again, when you compare these pseudogenes, you find the same family tree. There are minor exceptions to that. But in general, it's, it's dramatically true that if you look at different genes, you find they fall on the same tree. What could that tree be but a family tree? The only alternative is that the intelligent designer, the, the creator, deliberately set out to, to, to deceive us and make it look as though evolution had happened when it didn't. That's not a resort that I think many theists would wish to cling to. Next chapter, history written all over us. When you look at modern animals, you don't need to look at fossils, just look at modern animals, and you can see their history written all over them. Look at a dolphin, look at a whale. It's a purely aquatic animal, lives only in the sea. But you can tell from looking at it that it has all the hallmarks of a land mammal. It's descended from a land mammal. Our bodies, any animal's body, has mistakes which no designer would ever have perpetrated, and yet which clearly are understandable if you think historically, if you think this is descended from an ancestor which did things differently. I was privileged to be um, attendant, I suppose would be the right word, on a dissection of a giraffe's neck a few week, a few months ago, while I was writing the book, in fact. And we were dissecting the recurrent laryngeal nerve of this giraffe, which had unfortunately died in a zoo. The recurrent laryngeal nerve is one of the, it's a branch of one of the cranial nerves. It starts with the, in the brain, and it, its end organ is the larynx, the voice box. So you might think that if a designer had made this nerve, he would have made it go straight from the brain to the larynx, which is what most nerves do. This nerve, however, goes right past the larynx, way down into the chest, loops around one of the main arteries in the chest, different one on different sides, and then goes back up to the larynx. In a human, that's a detour of a foot or so. In a giraffe, it's a detour of 15 feet or so. I watched this nerve as it was being dissected out. It, go, it goes within a, an inch or so of the larynx, and it goes straight past it. 
and then goes on south, on and on and on and on, down into the chest, turns around and goes back up again. No designer in his senses would ever have done that. Yet it makes perfect sense when you think of it historically, when you look back to the fish ancestors of mammals, where that nerve was doing something very different, and the most direct route to what was then its end organ was indeed posterior to the artery that we're talking about. Then when mammal necks started, when fish don't have necks, when mammal necks started to elongate, it might have been possible to, to, to loop the nerve over so that it went north of the artery instead of south of the artery. But in fact, what happened was that the, it just stayed e elongating as the neck lengthened. The marginal cost of elongating the detour was so slight compared to uh, just um, the, the enormous cost of, or what, what probably would have been an enormous cost, of changing the embryological, changing the embryonic processes in order to completely reroute the nerve into what would be a more economical way of doing it. The marginal cost was slight, just another millimeter, what's another millimeter? Um, evolution happens gradually, just elongated a bit more. Human designers, intelligent designers of all kinds, go back to the drawing board when they've, when they've got a new design. When the jet engine, when the jet plane was invented, when the jet engine was invented, the designer of the first jet engine started with a clean drawing board. He didn't start with a propeller engine and then modify it rivet by rivet, screw by screw, nut by nut, which is the equivalent of the way evolution has to work. Imagine what a jet plane would look like if it was a, a gradually step-by-step -step modified propeller plane. That's, what, that's the limitation under which evolution is working. Given that, it's amazing that animals work so well the reason they work so well is despite these bodges, these bungles, as we would look at, as an engineer would call them, evolution, natural selection is a brilliant tinkerer that comes along afterwards and makes corrections after the event. So for example, with the, with the, the vertebrate retina in the eye, which is back to front, once again, what an atrocious piece of bad design that is. The photocells that are detecting the light are facing backwards. And the wires that connect them to the brain are in front, in the way of the light. And they have to dive through the retina in the so-called blind spot. What designer would ever have done that? Yet we see very well, because natural selection makes up for the initial bodge by superb tinkering of detail, which means that we end up seeing um, very well. Arms races and evolutionary theodicy. Chapter 12. The evolutionary arms race, I think, is a very important and interesting idea. Animals become adapted to their environment, but if the environment is the inanimate environment, like the weather, say an ice age comes, and then a drought comes, and then a flood comes, and something else comes, the evolution of the animals just tracks the environmental change. When the, when the cold weather comes, they get shaggier coats. When the cold weather goes, the the coats become less shaggy. This all happens in evolutionary time. But what if it's not the weather we're talking about, but predators? Predators are actually getting better at being predators because they're evolving too. On the other side, prey animals are getting better at getting away from predators. And so unlike the weather, which is maybe unpleasant, but it's not deliberately out to get you, <laughs> predators are. And prey animals are deliberately out to get away from you. And they're getting better at it. And so in evolutionary time, we see an arms race where the predators get a bit faster at running, and the prey animals have to get a bit faster, and the predators get faster. And it goes on escalating until now you see superb feats of speed by cheetahs and leopards on the one side and by gazelles, antelopes, zebras, uh, American antelopes, on the other hand, on the, on the other side. And when you look at any beautifully designed, apparently designed piece of biological machinery, like an eye or, an, or a knee joint, a fast-running leg, a, an efficiently pumping heart that goes on for a long time, what you're looking at is the end product of an evolutionary arms race, of several evolutionary arms races, run in evolutionary time, not to be confused with the race that's run in real time, between an individual leopard and 
an individual antelope. So the arms race is a race to improve the equipment for survival. This is an economical shift. It's got to be an economic shift into the weaponry of the arms race, whether it's long running legs or sharp teeth or keen eyes or whatever it is, from something else in the economy of the body, because the body is a very thrifty economy, has to be, like, for example, making milk. If only the leopards and the antelopes could come to some kind of trades union agreement that they're not, that they're not going to, that the, say, the, the antelopes are going to send a tithe of their number to be eaten uh, each, each year, um, then neither side would have to develop fast-running limbs at all. They could just get on with the business of reproduction. Everybody would be better off, but of course, that's not how evolution works. Evolution works at the individual level. I'm going to read a little bit about arms races. One thing about arms races that might worry enthusiasts for intelligent design is the heavy dose of futility that loads them down. If we're going to postulate a designer of the cheetah, he has evidently put every ounce of his designing expertise into the task of perfecting a superlative killer. One look at that magnificent running machine leaves us in no doubt. The cheetah, if we're going to talk design at all, is superbly designed for killing gazelles. But the very same designer has equally evidently strained every nerve to design a gazelle that is superbly equipped to escape those very same cheetahs. For heaven's sake, whose side is the designer on? <laughs> when you look at the cheetah's taut muscles and flexing backbone, you must conclude that the designer wants the cheetah to win the race. But when you look at the sprinting, jinking, dodging gazelle, you reach exactly the opposite conclusion. Does the designer's left hand not know what his right hand is doing? Is he a sadist who enjoys the thrill, who enjoys the spectator sport and is forever upping the ante on both sides to increase the thrill of the chase? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Is it really part of the divine plan that the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the lion eat straw like the ox? In that case, what price the formidable carnassial teeth, the murderous claws of the lion and the leopard, whence the breathtaking speed and agile escapology of the antelope and the zebra? Needless to say, no such problems arise on the evolutionary interpretation of what is going on. Each side is struggling to outwit the other because on both sides, those individuals who succeed will automatically pass on the genes that contributed to their success. Ideas of futility and waste spring to our minds because we are human and capable of looking at the welfare of the whole ecosystem. Natural selection cares only for the survival and reproduction of individual genes. Now, finally, the last chapter is called There is Grandeur in this View of Life, which you'll recognize as a quotation from Darwin. It comes from the very last paragraph of The Origin of Species. And my last chapter takes each sentence of Darwin's last paragraph and makes each sentence into a section heading of my last chapter. And the body of the section is an exegesis of that sentence of Darwin. And the last sentence of Darwin's book is, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. And I'm going to read the last page of the book in conclusion. The fact of our own existence is almost too surprising to bear. So is the fact that we are surrounded by a rich ecosystem of animals that more or less closely resemble us, by plants that resemble us a little less and on which we ultimately depend for our nourishment, and by bacteria that resemble our remoter ancestors and to which we shall all return in decay when our time is past. Darwin was way ahead of his time in understanding the magnitude of the problem of our existence as well as in tumbling to its solution. He was ahead of his time, too, in appreciating the mutual dependencies of animals and plants and all other creatures in relationships whose intricacy staggers the imagination. How is it that we find ourselves not merely existing but surrounded by such complexity, such elegance, such endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful? The answer is this. It could not have been otherwise given that we are capable of noticing our existence at all and of asking questions about it. 
It is no accident, as cosmologists point out to us, that we see stars in our sky. There may be universes without stars in them, universes whose physical laws and constants leave the primordial hydrogen evenly spread and not concentrated into stars. But nobody is observing those universes because entities capable of observing anything cannot evolve without stars. Not only does life need at least one star to provide energy, stars are also the furnaces in which the majority of the chemical elements are forged, and you can't have life without a rich chemistry. We could go through the laws of physics one by one and say the same thing of all of them. It is no accident that we see dot, dot, dot. The same is true of biology. It is no accident that we see green almost wherever we look. It is no accident that we find ourselves perched on one tiny twig in the midst of a blossoming and flourishing tree of life. No accident that we are surrounded by millions of other species, eating, growing, rotting, swimming, flying, walking, burrowing, stalking, chasing, fleeing, outpacing, outwitting. Without green plants to outnumber us at least 10 to 1, there would be no energy to power us. Without the ever-escalating arms races between predators and prey, parasites and hosts, without Darwin's war of nature, without his famine and death, there would be no nervous systems capable of seeing anything at all, let alone of appreciating and understanding it. We are surrounded by endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, and it is no accident but the direct consequence of evolution by non-random natural selection, the only game in town, the greatest show on earth. Thank you very much. Like what you heard today, but missed out on the live event? You're in luck. There are still two more events in the Science in the City Provocative Thinkers in Science series. Log on to scienceandthecity.org slash provocative thinkers to get your tickets. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, if you've got any feedback for us, send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.